Let's pray together. God, we need less of us and more of you. But all we can seem to think about is us. All I can seem to think about is me. Help each person in here to realize that their great satisfaction doesn't come from their self-actualization, but from knowing you. Help each person in here know that you are serious about helping them, but doing it on your terms because you know better than us. Your way is better than our way. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I beg you, Lord, to help us by your power to make effectual our behaviors in line with our beliefs that you know better than we do by your word. And Lord, if we are quickened by your word, if we, if we find an imploration in your word, if we find an application, make us quick to trust you and not ourselves that we might bring you glory and be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's awfully good to be with you today. If you're a visitor with us, we welcome you. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield tells this story about painful church discipline. Rosaria's husband, Kent, is one of the elders at their church. A man in their church, we'll call him Ben, was caught in sexual immorality, specifically adultery. Now, we all know that this is a current dilemma in our world. This is not uncommon. But she gives us a case specific to one person. Here's what she wrote about did Rosaria. She said, this man, Ben, he defended, he excused, he pointed fingers at everyone else when he was confronted with his known, characteristic, unrepentant sin, his obvious sin. And he pointed fingers. Ben was removed from his role in the church, but that didn't fix him. Ben continued in the down, downward spiral, the fall. Uh, he wound up divorcing his faithful wife. He blame shifted. He continued living in sin after a long period of time. In fact, in this case, years of counseling and pleading and praying. Ben was excommunicated from this church. Butterfield wrote, He left our church and many of us never saw or heard from Ben again. Near the same time, in that same church, another man with a sexually immoral sin, when confronted, he repented. He repented with tears. He found refreshing for his soul. It's this latter case that the all-church forgiveness of our passage today in 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11 has in its view. A case where a man has turned from his sin, has repented, and now needs the refreshing touch of God's people upon him. Their love expressed, not this time in excommunication or discipline, but this time in reaffirmation and connection. Their relationship had necessarily changed with this man because he was caught in a quagmire of sin. And the best way that they knew to love him was to say, we can't validate your testimony of faith right now because your life is so incommensurate with what you say that you believe. And that dissonance was removed by God's grace because only saved people repent. Unsaved people, they have remorse, but only saved people repent 
turn a new direction. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means to turn the other way. Only save people repent. This is no remorse. In our passage today, it is repentance. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 5 with me uh, in your Bibles at this time. 2 Corinthians 2, 5. I want to say a little bit more from Butterfield's book. She wrote, One repented, the other refused. Our church and community have struggled with this consequence of these two church discipline cases ever since. Adding to the pain of the moment was who both men had been before their very public falls. Both men had held biblical positions with a strong and strident edge. They had talked about issues in the church. Both men had presented themselves as family men, upstanding fathers and husbands. Both men had legitimate ministries to others. One was a great teacher, another an avid reader. They had touched our lives, all of our lives in the church. We had shared good times together. We looked forward to more. One had served us communion, and the other had organized church-sponsored camping trips and cookouts. Their gifts were real. We lost something vital when we lost them to sin. Rosaria's husband made the announcement of both discipline cases, ironically, on the same Lord's Day. She writes, It was a grand slam of shame for all of us. Sexual sin had ravaged our little church. Sexual sin is ravaging the church universal. Sometimes when sexual sin plunders the church, we feel ill and outraged. Other times when sexual sin raises the church, we feel smugly entitled and secretly proud to be on the right side of history. Sexual sin, no matter, divides and destroys families, it destroys people, it destroys churches. And she writes something of hope. And she writes something of hope that I'll come back to late in this sermon. Christ's sacrifice is so life-transforming and guilt-removing that in repentance of sin, sexual sinners are not destroyed. Even if they lose everything they ever loved or worked so hard to attain. She writes, helpfully, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He truly delivers us from bondage. When the elders exercised church discipline with the congregation, we all got to know each other better than we ever thought we could. Things got hard. Fast. Very few of us in the church knew each other well enough to know our past or present sins until this happened. Suddenly, we no longer hid. Our private worlds were on display. People turned and turned to Jesus, and people had to know each other. Sometimes people pointed fingers, and sometimes situations were hard. But our pastor maintained a biblical position that sin is deceptive and that Christ's own do not fall into temptation, delusion, and the power, or Christ's own do fall, rather, into temptation, delusion, and the power of sin. They do, frighteningly and sadly, at times fall into that delusion from Satan, who's mentioned in our passage today clearly. The Bible teaches that what separates a believer from an unbeliever is repentance, this gift from God, repentance, and only believers repent. So a few questions that our sermon today is going to answer, and as we open with reading the text, I think you'll hear how these questions overlay with the text. Uh, why would a church engage in such a practice as church discipline? Isn't church discipline counterproductive? How is this love? I thought the way that we were to love people is just let them be the way that they are. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they think. Are our philosophical axioms. What does Jesus expect from his local church is a question. What is the shape of Jesus' love through his local church? This text helps us answer these questions, and we will take God at his word more readily and experience the grace that God has for us more fully when we're not outwitting by the defrauding of the devil. So let us now read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 
11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That singular person, him. Verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not unaware of his manner of thinking, of the way that he attempts to defraud God's people of their blessings and of their good and of giving glory to God. So this is our passage today, and I want to unpack it in three ways. The sermon title, Loving Discipline, seems like an oxymoron, but in God's economy it is not. Discipline is loving, and loving involves discipline. In fact, as we like to say around here, there's no such thing as affection without correction. Correction follows affection. The Bible says that God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. Discipline and love is not separate. It comes together. Of course, there is a right and a wrong way to go about discipline. There is a herky-jerky way that's not helpful. There's a rush-to-judgment way, a self-righteous way. Nevertheless, misuses of discipline doesn't make the act of discipline unloving and does not make it unhelpful, and it doesn't make it not God's will. For example, can you imagine a well-managed home that loved, or the parents loved their children by never disciplining them? You can't, can you? A well-managed home involves discipline. Now, we don't always use the exact same verbs and handle things exactly the same way, but there are times when this is so very important. And I would argue, and I think the text bears this out today, that having a culture of discipleship is, is really what the goal of the unfortunate, very rare usage of discipline entails. The goal is a culture where we know each other enough to disciple one another. That's the warp and woof of the New Testament. That's New Covenant grace. Grace administered by people that know each other enough to be able to speak into one another's lives, not in a member's meeting, not calling out the Calvary to excommunicate someone, but just to say, hey, brother, I think you're struggling with this, and, and then that to be received. That's the idea, I believe. And so I'm going to try to unpack this in three ways. First of all, I'm going to look at verse 5, and we're going to look at the pain of this one church, this church at Corinth. And then secondly, we're going to look at the pain of one in the church, this one man, and we're going to look at that in verses 6 through 8. And then thirdly, we're going to look at God's comfort for the one and for the church together in verses 9 through 11. So if you're following along, verse 5 is the pain of the church. Verses 6 through 8 is the pain of the one. And then verses 9 through 11 is God's comfort for them both, for all of them. So first of all, the way we're going to impact this is looking at verse 5. The pain of of this church, this church at Corinth. Now, just a little bit of background from previous sermons, if you haven't been able to be with us, or just to refresh, because if you're like me, you've slept since then. 
This is likely Paul's fourth letter to the church at Corinth. He had opened up this church. He had planted this church a few years earlier during his second missionary journey. And now during his third missionary journey, he is, has written letters to the church. And he's writing this now, the fourth letter, we believe, to the church after a lot of things have happened. He's writing this letter from Ephesus over to Corinth. And so across the Aegean Sea would have been the geography of it all. Paul has visited the church. And when I say he's written things, I say it nebulously because he's written lots of things. He's written about church discipline, for one thing. He's written about effectual relationships, moral relationships. He's, he's written about idolatry. He's written about the Lord's Supper. He's written about orderly church worship, the giving of spiritual gifts. This is all in 1 Corinthians. And it was probably in the letter that came before 1 Corinthians and the third letter that came after 1 Corinthians. But this is now the fourth letter that is mentioned in these letters. It comes to us as 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter that Paul likely sent after having made not a planting visit, but probably also another visit. And there's probably a visit that comes after this. We'll get into that more next week. But he sends this letter to them because he thinks, he discerns that it's better for them if he sends a letter and sends Titus than if he comes and if he confronts the church in some of their issues and compounds issues. He's, he doesn't want to come across, I don't think, in this situation as too confrontational. And in fact, history bears out that the church at Corinth did do better. The text tells us that they did better after Titus's visit. And even we see some of that in the middle of 2 Corinthians. So this is a letter sent to the church at Corinth. And so when we talk about the pain of this church, we're talking about this church at Corinth that was planted in the AD 50s, early AD 50s, and is now being written to benevolently and pointedly by their apostle, the apostle Paul. So you should read First and Second Corinthians with that backdrop, with that in mind. Now, the apostle Paul wrote this letter, was God's instrument to write this letter, but it's God's holy word. It is extant in our canon of Scripture, it is given to us for the teaching and the rebuking of the saints for our well-being. And so this is not just to that one church, but it's to every church everywhere. And it's to this church right here because we affirm this word. Now, our first point this morning, to restate it, is the pain of this one church. If you look at verse 5, the word pain is prominent. Do you see it? Now, if anyone has caused, say it with me, pain. If anyone has caused pain... This word is used, or a derivative of it, seven times in seven verses to start this chapter. If anyone has caused pain, it says, He has caused it not to me, Paul writes, but in some measure, I want to constrain my speech, I don't want to put it too severely, he says, to all of you. So the pain, the sorrow, the pain has been to the whole church. Differently, the whole church is invested in this situation. This is not social shunning. This is awareness and investment. This is not turning a blind eye. This is awareness and investment. This is, not to put it too severely, this is pain caused to all of you. The Apostle Paul is taking the light off of himself, and he's saying to them, this is not my fetish with some person. This is not my issue with some person. This is the way that the church is supposed to function. I'm not using first-person singular pronouns for this to be about me, Paul is saying. He's saying to them, I want you to understand that I'm taking investment to teach you that this is what your church is supposed to look like. This is what I want for you. This is what God's grace looks like in community. Heavy stuff. 
This is about this one church. And it, it says that this pain has been caused to the, to the whole church, to all of them. David Garland writes it this way. He says, It is frequently difficult for those who are not directly involved in personal disputes in churches to see how they are also directly affected. Church disputes affect everyone, whether or not they are personally involved. Garland writes, They damage the entire congregation. In this instance, the dispute had repercussions even on people in Troas. If the, if the offender was, in, was the incestuous man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had his father's wife, his stepmother, his very presence in the congregation exposed them to this spiritual contagion, leaven in the whole lump, to quote 1 Corinthians 5. Paul understands the offender's mistreatment of him also injured the entire church community. Paul steps gingerly to avoid overstating the case with the phrase, not to put it too severely, or constrainedly, he puts it, and to incite afresh the person's resentment. So Garland writes about how this is not just biblically about the whole, it's practically about the whole. You're more affected than what you might have expected. And he, he says, he goes on to say, that Satan can be behind both moral laxity and anything goes attitude, and also the other extremity of a callous inflexibility. Everyone goes who does not toe the line. Satan can use the church's permissiveness in failing to chastise sinner in the midst to bring them to ruin, and he can use the church's rigidity in failing to forgive chastened sinners to bring it to ruin. So he could either way, inflexibility on the one hand or moral laxity on the other. Uh, and, and, and I think the tendency is for churches to go toward moral laxity until they've just had a belly full of it, and then to go all the way over to the other side and run off in the ditch with inflexibility. And I don't think that either of those extremes is what the texts collectively, the biblical data synthesizes, calling us to. What I believe the Bible's calling us to is to long suffer with people. And when it is absolutely assured that the congregation can feel and discern that a member is not acting consistent with his or her covenant, that it's a known pattern of sin, it's characteristic, it's a pattern, it's known by all, it's, it's kind of a, a scandal in a sense, and it's known it's characteristic, and that person won't repent when a small group has come to that person after one-on-one has come to that person, after the whole church has said, hey, listen, this is what we believe, you can't be doing that, then it's loving for the church to discipline that person formally, to say to that person, we can't, after all this time, we can't verify that your profession is valid. We're not saying you're not saved. What we're saying is saved people repent, and we're calling you to repentance. And if that is the investment of a congregation, two things happen. First of all, it's pain for all of you. It's not just pain for a couple of leaders or a very interested person like Paul. It's pain for everybody. And the other thing that happens is if you are that invested, the sin of pride that wanted you to not really look at that issue and just leave it alone, maybe socially shun or kind of talk a little bit but not deal with it, then when the membership congregationally deals with it, the other kind of sin that comes out with that is we are reticent once we've put ourselves out there to let that person back in if they repent. We're reticent to push that person away and to shun them and, or list them on the side for the rest of their adult lives. 
And this text is saying that that is just as damaging and just as harmful as when the church was unwilling to feel the pain of the situation and to address it in 1 Corinthians 5 in the first letter that we have in our canon to the Corinthians. So this is sort of like the other side. And the church is really struggling here. And Paul is pastoral in the way that he talks to this one church, to the church at Corinth. He is caring. He's loving. And he helps them to see that there is pain that they all feel. And now it's time to go to our second point. Let's consider the pain of that one member because the church had leaned on him and said, you can't live that way. Can't act that way. That's not consistent with your covenant. Listen to what it says in verses 6 through 8 about the pain of that one. Let's just read the verses again. Verse 6. For such a one, this punishment or penalty, this admonishment, range of meaning of the word, for, this, for such a one, for that one person, this punishment by the majority, the, the many, the majority, the comparative analysis of the group, the word means, and so it comes to us as punishment of the majority of ostensibly the believers at that church, the members of that church, you might say, this punishment by the majority, this penalty, he says, it's enough. Now, the assumed thing here is this person has repented. And so the congregation needs to relent because this person has repented. It says, for such a one, verse six, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough that this person has felt the weight of the church's authority on them to say, we cannot let you live like that without saying something and without saying to you, disciplining you and saying, you can't, you can't be immoral in that way. That's not what Christians do. You're, you're going to leaven the whole lump. The little ones are going to see this and think it's okay. Our witness to the world is being maligned. And you aren't being loved very well because we're not actually helping you be sanctified by telling you the truth that you might repent and grow. And so there's nothing loving about turning a wink, wink, nod, nod, blind eye to, I'm talking about big, characteristically unrepentant sin. And it's known. And so he says here now, assuming this person has repented, and I think that's the, that's the undertone to this, verse 7, so you should now rather turn, you people, you majority, you congregation, turn to forgive. Turn, and that word forgive means grace. It, it means to show grace, to extend grace. The range of meaning is forgive or grace. And comfort him. More on the word comfort in a second. But this, this text has already told us in chapter 1 that God is, is the one that gives all comfort to his people. The Spirit is described as the comforter or the advocate in John chapter 14. And so it's saying here, the text is saying, the imploration to us is, is that we should turn to forgive and comfort that one that is repentant. Why? He may be drunk on sorrow. Overwhelmed is like continuing to have to drink something. And so it's, if you don't actually turn and forgive this person, just the same as you weren't willing to love this person by disciplining them to begin with, now if you won't turn and reinstate that person, because for whatever reason, you, your pride, probably the members didn't want to welcome him back. They were putting too many stipulations on accepting his repentance. You're causing that person to continue to drink their sorrow. And we don't want to see a repentant believer isolated from the flock. The only reason to isolate a person is if they're obstinate, like the man named Ben in Rosaria Butterfield's story that I told from the onset of the sermon. That's the only reason to say that person, our relationship with you has necessarily changed until you repent. As soon as you repent, we rejoice with the angels in heaven. Repent of your sin. As soon as you do it. Great. 
But we can't inevitably continue to act as if everything's okay with someone like Ben. Now, you've all seen this. When we don't have a very good understanding of these biblical texts, we don't know how to respond faithfully when there's a scandal in the church, now do we? I would urge you to read 1 Corinthians 5 in light of our text today to think about how to respond when there's something scandalous, particularly immoral, that occurs amongst one of the members of the church. It's not very loving to those that are left in the wreckage when something like this happens and the church doesn't have a mechanism and a specificity to response. Texts like this assume the gospel of Matthew chapter 16 and 18 where the Lord gives authority to the church to pronounce his forgiveness to people and to say to, for, to people, whatever it is that we forgive on earth is forgiven in heaven, whatever is forgiven in heaven is forgiven on earth, to say to people, we recognize that your testimony is commensurate with a forgiven people and we've been forgiven much and so we understand that you've been forgiven much too. It's, it's, it's understanding, Matthew 16 and 18, it's understanding that part and parcel of fulfilling the Great Commission is teaching the disciples to obey or observe all that the Lord has commanded. That's not just flying over a new convert. It's not just dunking somebody and sort of leaving them to their own devices. It's intentional discipling of the people. And it's in that culture of being known that admittedly takes much time to build, much time to build. But it's in that culture that grace is experienced more and more deeply so that when something like this happens, everybody feels it acutely. And it may be that, that this text is, is years down the road from us really being able to apply because we're only beginning to get that invested in one another's lives. We're talking about now this one, the pain of this one. And Apostle Paul is begging them. He is calling them to comfort and to reaffirm their love for him, this singular person right now, verse 8 says. They don't, he doesn't want him to be overly sorrowful, continuing to drink sorrow when he is clearly repentant. The word sorrow is the same, similar meaning as pain mentioned in verse 5 and before. Uh, comfort is a God-given trait. I beg is parakaleo to come alongside just like comforter, the comfort of the spirit. Repentance is the underpinning of this passage. The background elevator music is that this man is sorrowful, so don't make him keep drinking it. Don't keep pounding a person that's sensitive. This is not an obstinate person. This, this is a person that is now softened, that was firmly hardened. Repentance is balm to a wayward man. I want you to know if you are that unrepentant person this morning, even if you haven't had a church know you enough and love you enough to bring that out, if you are that unrepentant person, I want you to know that comfort comes after repentance. I want you to know that repentance is balm for your soul. This is not, this, this person in this text is not obstinate. You're not going to tell me what to do. This is a person that's sorrowful because he feels the weight of the congregation and their love for him, even in telling him no, telling the truth. This is a man who wouldn't repent and now has repented, and we should rejoice at that, and the congregation is reticent to do so, I think. I think that's what's going on here in this text. matter of fact, I'm, I'm certain of it. The text says so. This kind of comfort is only to be offered when one is contrite, somber. That then the joy of reaffirmation is felt acutely. They never stopped loving him. It's not that they didn't love him. 
That would be wrong for the congregation to stop loving him. It's that the expression of love was, you must repent. And then now the expression of love is, I'm so glad that you did. What refreshing comes to you and to the congregation and to our witness. This reaffirm word in this text has legal connotation. It's not dissimilar from the word that comes to us, kurios, Lord, like Lord Jesus or Lord of your life. It is a governance type word. It, it signifies rule or authority. And so this reaffirmation, it's used in Galatians 3.15, same word, talking about ratifying the covenant. So this is clearly uh, bringing up courtroom or legal imagery where he's saying reaffirm, formally even, reaffirm, reconfirm, make valid, use the authority that God has given you as a church to reaffirm in this person your formal fellowship and love. Give him grace. Give him grace. Give him grace. Now that, for sure, is easier to say than to do. This person could be overcome by sorrow. This person has been loved, and the congregation cannot be guilty at this point of the charge of the church at Thyatira. Do you remember that? If you read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 19 to 29, one of the seven local churches mentioned in Revelation is Thyatira. And what Jesus says there through the Apostle John is, I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The Lord Jesus says, I have given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. This is the word of the Lord, and it ends with, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2.29 for the information. This church at Corinth is not guilty of that anymore. They've stopped being guilty of that. They're not tolerating a Jezebel in the church. They're not tolerating sexually immoral behavior. Many churches are guilty of doing that. They're not doing that now. The Apostle Paul, in a way, is affirming the church that it was your love of this man that caused him to be driven to repentance. I used your grace in tough love. Now I'm asking you to use grace in soft love. God wants to make his, his love known through you in this difficult situation. Now, thirdly and finally, God's comfort for everybody involved. It's not just about the pain of the church or the pain of the one, but thirdly and finally, verses 9 through 11, God's comfort for the one and the church together again afresh. Listen to verses 9 through 11. For this is why I wrote, the Apostle Paul says, this is why I wrote, that I might test you, that I might prove you, that I might test you, and know whether you are obedient in all things, in everything. Sounds a lot like the Great Commission. Teach them to observe everything. I might test you to know whether you're obedient in all things. Then he says in verse 10, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Now you should just pause and listen to that verse for a second. The church local needing to exercise their authority to say to a person, Hey, the Lord forgives you, and I forgive you too. I see the evidence of the Lord's work in your life. It's not the church is saving this person. 
It's that the, person, the church is saying to this person, because you have repented, and only save people repent. Unsaved people show remorse with fits and starts, but really repenting, turning a new direction, that's something reserved for saved people in Christ, in the presence of Christ. And so the church collectively, when healthy, shows grace by saying to you, we see God's forgiveness in your life. We see evidence, and we love you, and we express that love in this way now. And so when he says... Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, or what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then finally, verse 11, and we'll go back to verse 10, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul says here in this text, this is why I wrote you. I wanted to test you. And the reason that I tested you is I, and he tells us why here. It's, it's fascinating. The reason why I wrote is I wanted to test you to see if you are obedient. Not just in some things, but everything. And I think the hard things, to see if you're obedient in the difficult things. Now, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. That sounds like a lot of authority vested in God's local church. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23. This is when Jesus met his disciples on a Sunday and instituted to them, gave them the keys to the kingdom, and he acknowledged a profession of faith is valid, and he said, you can't save them, but you can say to them, when he repent and believes, forgiven. And he says all that in a lumped up phrase with these verses, John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so it was a Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, Jesus said. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness with any, it is withheld. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness with any, for many, it is withheld. Now, what is going on with the leaders in the early church and the church? How is this to be? Well, they have received the Spirit, and so we have discernment as they have discernment to be able to say that testimony is valid because they show a basic repentance of sin. And withholding forgiveness is not withholding the opportunity for forgiveness. It's withholding the verification that we see evidence that that forgiveness has been accepted. And this simple little nuance gives us so much trouble as a church. It's so distasteful. The church ostensibly has the authority to command, of command to give and to withhold the ordinances, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper. That as they have command to, to receive and release or even revoke membership. This is a membership citing in the New Testament. John 20, 19 to 23, and 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11, and, and so on. It was, it was time for them to forgive because of all this backdrop and not to hold it over their head and not to be, as verse 11 says, outwitted by Satan. They could have been outwitted by Satan, 1 Corinthians 5 says, because they were unwilling to go through this distasteful confrontation of that that's not acceptable. You can't 
be sexually immoral like that in a known characteristic way. You must repent. That was distasteful, and they could have been outwitted by Satan. Well, now on the other side of it, in 2 Corinthians 2, you could be outwitted or defrauded by Satan. You could be taken advantage of by Satan because you won't relent on a person that's clearly repented. And so he's bringing us along here here in this, this process of what it looks like to be God's people, to wield the authority of the keys to the kingdom to say, that looks forgiven. That person's not repentant. A basic distinction that the church is to make from the world that we might have an effective witness to the world. We need this spiritual weaponry. We need the Spirit. God left us the Spirit. Christ left us the paraclete, the Spirit, to comfort us so that we can comfort others. And this is the way that God comforts the one and the church, all of us, is by us being obedient so that we're not outwitted or defrauded by Satan, so that we're not outwitted or defrauded by the enemy. I am so thankful to be a part of a church that cares about God's Word. I'm so thankful to walk with you in this and to grow with you and learn with you. And as I've told you last week, um, I'm nominating three lay elders to join our staff elders in the leadership of this church. After you, the congregation, approve the nominations at our scheduled members meeting, if you approve it, September 15th, then you'll have an elder-led yet congregationally ruled church, also in accordance with our Constitution. Now, that's pivotal because we're a congregationally ruled church. Remember the majority in this passage, it's the congregation that leans on the person that's wayward. It's not just the elders, but the Bible sets aside elders and deacons for specific offices in the church to show grace to the church and to help the church through these situations. They have an acute purview as seers over the congregation that the Lord intends. And so it's not in our context, it's not that we see that the elders have an authority of command, but that the elders have an authority of counsel. They influence, not that they make the decisions. That's why we have five members meetings a year. It's why you're constantly implored to come to the meetings, such as the next one is September 15th. What we have then as a church body is an opportunity to walk through situations together for the love of people. If you're curious as a prospective member uh, what this is about and you want to learn more, you can circle in your tear-off, I want to take membership matters. Pastor Kurt is going to lead a course starting September the 8th. If you're already a member, you can circle that, but we're going to direct you toward a Saturday seminar through Membership Matters for those that are already members, and the, the elders of the church will lead you through that later in the fall. We're also interested in church leadership. Because the office of elders reserved for qualified men only and not women, we want to offer a word to women. Some of you are gifted and qualified to lead. Your role in the home of the church is indispensable. Your work is worthwhile. We want to take the time to train you in church leadership. And so today I submitted a church leadership proposal to our church board to go through and then to offer to the church this fall in the meeting. We're going to teach on the concepts of that and of biblical eldership next Sunday morning right here at 915. You don't have to be a member to come to that. If you want to learn more about this, come next Sunday, September the 1st. We're offering this kind of church-wide Sunday school class to explain church leadership, to explain elder nominations and what this means for our church. And so non-members and members alike can come next Sunday uh, at 9.15 if you'd like to. I felt the need to share that today because all of this comes together in this text. Church discipline is not a solo sport. Church discipline is the last 
distasteful step in a very, very long process of knowing each other and being known. Church discipline, I heard one lady say in a faithful church, she'd only heard of it a few times in her 20 years in the church. It was a very faithful church that was close together. This is not the first step, and it's not a solo sport, but the way that God leads us sometimes causes us to have to say, that is unacceptable. I'm sure you can think of situations like that in your own mind. And so when I ask you this morning to ponder application of this sermon in this way, I want you to think, what would be a scenario by which you yourself would need to be disciplined if you were unrepentant, known to the congregation publicly, and characteristically caught up in a sin? I want you to think of something that you could do that would warrant the weight of the membership of the majority to come and say, this is wrong. You must repent. You must repent or you must be excommunicated. You must repent. I wonder what that would be. What, what would it take for that to happen? God forbid it ever happens to you, but were you to need that kind of love that you might have assurance of your salvation through repentance that you surely weren't coming to on your own, what would it be? What would finally be enough? The design of our enemy toward our first parents, Adam and Eve, hasn't really changed. It gets at us through our desires. It gets at us through what we want to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree. It gets at us through our desires. It gets at us through thinking that God's trying to keep something from us or God's misinformed us. Surely you won't die if you eat of this tree. The design of the enemy hasn't changed that much. But we still get outwitted or defrauded by him from time to time, as verse 11 says. When we seek out biblical church discipline, we are experiencing the very means of grace that God has for us as a congregation, and we're not getting outwitted by Satan. From the onset this morning, we ask questions. Why would a church engage in a practice like this? Isn't it counterproductive? We just want people. How can this be love? I thought the way we love people is to stay out of their business, to let them be the way they are, to, to not care what they do and not care what they think. thought that was to be our philosophical axioms. What does Jesus expect from his church in these things? What is the shape of his love in these things? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 helps us answer these questions for the church, faithful, for the one that's wayward, for the comfort of them all in coming back together. This is the shape of Jesus' love. Remember Rosaria's story to start the sermon? To refresh, her husband Kent announced both discipline cases on the same Lord's Day. It was a grand slam of shame for them all, she wrote and said. She said sexual sin had ravaged their little church. It was ravaging the church. Sometimes when sexual sin plunders the church, she wrote, we feel ill and outraged. Other times, sexual sin raises the church and we feel smugly entitled and secretly proud to be on the right side of history. I'm glad that's not me this time. Sexual sin divides and destroys people and family and churches. And she says that the pastor maintained a biblical position that sin is deceptive, and that Christ's own do sometimes fall into that deception and delusion. Sadly and frighteningly, and the Bible teaches what separates a believer from an unbeliever is their willingness to repent when confronted with their sin. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift from God. And she asserts only a believer can repent. 
And Christ's sacrifice is so life-transforming and guilt-removing that in repentance of sin, sexual sinners are not destroyed. Even if they lose things that they've worked for and worked to attain, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He delivers us from our bondage. And when the church exercises church discipline, we get to know one another better and we go deeper. And it's like that with Christ. Anytime I've personally died to myself and lived for Christ, discovered the error of my way and my ways of thinking, most always God uses his word and a faithful church member to grow me in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. To bring me back without ever getting to the point of it being some kind of a public fiasco. Christ died so we wouldn't have to hide our shamed sin and our quagmires. Christ died to build a community of grace expressing itself in love to one another in the small things before they become big. Unbeliever, don't you see God's love for you in this? For your family? For your prospective family? Unbeliever, it's a frightful place for you to be outside of God's grace and his ordinary means of grace in the church community. Your step as an unbeliever is to repent of your sins, known and unknown, and to believe in Christ's death as a substituting, atoning sacrifice for your sins. Jesus died so you can live. That's the equation, and that's the great starting point for you. And believer, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is present, and all of this is for your sake in Christ's presence, as our text today says. Christ is still and will always be the great societal fix Christ is still and will always be the great fix for the workplace, for government. It is the law of Christ that shall stand, and Christ is the great fix for you and for your family. And truly, Christ is the great hope for this church. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us. Help us to take you at your word, to do the hard things. Help us me to take you at your word and do the hard things. Help me not to hide. Help each person in my hearing to have assurance of their salvation because you've led them to repent of their sin and believe on you alone for grace. Help us in our expression of grace to people that are repentant. And Lord, soften the heart of an unrepentant person by our rank unwillingness to capitulate to the norms of this world. For you are creating a world in which you are king and we are part of it. Help us to operate as such in the here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While we meditate on this text, I invite our ushers to come to collect our tear-offs.